This paid podcast is produced by Slate Studios and Century 21 Real Estate. From Slate Studios and Century 21 Real Estate, this is The Relentless, a podcast about looking at sales differently. What if? What if I thought outside the box? What if it was more of a celebration with our clients than work? In every episode, we're pulling back the curtain with thought leaders across industries and talking about how they embrace change, overcome hurdles, and stay relentless. I'm Dr. Julie Gurner. I've spent over a decade studying the behaviors of the ultra-successful and have used those insights to empower business leaders in finance, technology, and real estate. Today, we're talking to someone who's reached astonishing heights in the world of sales, Erica Feidner. Who is Erica? Well, she pairs people with one of the largest investments anyone can make. But I'm not talking about a house. I'm talking about pianos. She's so good at it, Inc. Magazine named her one of the top 10 greatest salespeople of all time. This is a woman who has sold more than $80 million in pianos over the course of her 27-year career. And for nearly a decade, she's held the distinction of the top sales representative worldwide for Steinway. And even with these kinds of numbers, the transaction is always secondary for her. She's all about relationships and communication. I'm constantly learning new things in my conversations and research around the ultra-successful. And what amazed me about Erica is that she takes a very different approach to most of us. You know, most of us, myself included, do a lot of business and communication impersonally. We text, we email, and we build relationships online and oftentimes in a way that's very out of touch with the consumer that we're speaking to. But Erica, she sits with them. She gets to know them, and it's really the bedrock of her business. She isn't product first. She's person first, and it makes a massive difference to how she operates. I tend to back away from the word sales. I've been known to say sales (laughs) is a four-letter word, not because it's a bad thing, For me, it's really about connecting with people, helping them understand what their actual needs are, and to see how I can maybe help them with that, whether it's a piano or or something else. And I think we all do it. That's just not something you hear from a salesperson every day. I wanted to dig in more, and I was thrilled she was game to talk with me on the podcast. Welcome, Erica, to The Relentless, and thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. So tell me, Erica, how do you go about pairing a person with the perfect piano for them? I would say since my earlier years, which really started in 1990, I have been able to pare it down to a few minutes between meeting somebody and knowing which instrument would be a good choice for them. I'm thinking about what their needs are right now and in 20 years going forward, which is terribly important. And then going through the inventory in my head as they're speaking, my job was to know the sound, touch, and serial number of every piano in the building at all times. And then we'll look at three or four pianos, and you know, narrow it down depending on you know, how many people in the family are going to play. Right. When I talk to the ultra-successful, there are so many variables that contribute to their eventual success. We know that there are personality traits like grit, where we see this mix of passion and perseverance and resilience. But your environment couldn't have been more ideal for helping to make you successful at what you do. 
Was there something in your upbringing that you think really put you on this path? I think having grown up in a household with 30 pianos in it might have helped just a little bit. Yeah, that's incredible. You have so much in your background that seems to contribute to the person that you are today. And, you know, you also have this ability to read people so well. Where does that come from? I grew up in Old Bennington, Vermont, in a family of seven educators. We are all pianists and teachers. So every summer, 45 children descended upon our house Wow! and lived with us. So there are children and adults living in the house all the time from all walks of life at every level of performance. And if you're around people from different walks of life living there, you get a sense of somebody very quickly. And then applying that to how they think is another step. Right. And that exact next step is seemingly what distinguishes a good seller from a great seller. How do you do it? I will listen to the people speaking, and I'll listen to the tempo of how they speak, whether they are speaking on a a sort of monotone level, whether they have an engaging sense of personality and voice from the get-go, whether they're hesitant, whether the client is anxious, whether they think they're going to be taken by someone. I can always tell when somebody's been somewhere else. Hmm. Because they'll walk in the door and say, we don't need any help. Interesting. And I'll say, that's fine. Please take a look. And then perhaps we can chat. I love that approach. I think almost everyone has had a negative sales experience at some time. And it sounds like you've really developed a sixth sense for communicating with people through that experience. It reminds me of other people who are really exceptional at sales. They're reading reactions. They're looking for cues. And I'm curious... How do you overcome those barriers when you have a client that's somewhat resistant? So the most important thing is to allow them to freely go and look at some instruments. Now, it's important for me to view this without them feeling like I'm watching. But I'm looking at, you know, what piques their interest and this and that. And then I will bring to them what I call my brag book. So tell us a little bit more about that brag book. It seems a really phenomenal example of a tool in your arsenal, and it does some of the important talking for you. How does that work? Anything in writing is helpful for a client to see that you actually have credibility or testimonials from other clients. And I will then, after a few minutes, bring it to them and and say, look, I would like to tell you a little bit about my background so you can understand that our experience here today might be unlike anything you've experienced. So how do you make buying a piano an experience rather than just a transaction? Anytime somebody walks in the door, it has nothing to do with sales. If I cannot show that individual or that family what that particular piano has to offer, it's not going home. Even when I'm on straight commission, P.S. Won't do it. For me, it's really about connecting with people, helping them understand what their actual needs are, and to see how I can maybe help them with that, whether it's a piano or or something else. So can I ask you, in your opinion, what makes a salesperson great? What I believe makes a great salesperson is not the sale. There is a transaction. 
So there, there is a piece of paper where I write their name down and the serial number and the cost and all that stuff. There is a common thread with every single aspect of sales. And here it is. Every situation is unique. That's the thread. <laughs> Everything has to be customized. Every single thing has to be customized. And you know, that's something I'm finding across all different sales environments. For example, in real estate, there was an agent I know who was looking for a very specific house. It had to be wheelchair accessible in a specific school district, and the family did not want to do a conversion on their own. So he waited two years scanning the environment, didn't find the perfect house, and he knew a former client was selling this beautiful mid-century home. Open floor plan could be a beautiful conversion. And he was so convinced that this would be an amazing house for this family that he went out of his own pocket, had a rendering done, did the cost analysis, presented it to the clients. They loved it and was able to find them the perfect home. And it seems to me that you never settle either unless you find the perfect product for your client. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about why that is for you? Because that's the way it is. That's how I'm built. I will not compromise. I, at one point, was asked to lower my standards, lower my expectations, and minimize the amount of time I spent with a client. And I said, I'm so sorry, I don't belong here. And I founded a company called Piano Matchmaker. And that way, I could help people choose pianos of any make, anywhere in the world. And I wasn't confined to a territory and a brand. And you know, it's so important to make sure the client is happy. But I'm not letting a piano leave unless I'm sure as well. And there have been times I've said, I know, we both like this piano. It's not perfect. Please write a check for $1,000. When I find it, I'll slap on that $1,000 deposit on the serial number, call you, you come in, and you tell me whether it's right or wrong. And I haven't missed a beat. <laughs> So with that deposit, clients are really trusting you with a product they haven't even seen yet. I mean, that's incredible. And when you find that customized piano, cost is also, I imagine, a large part of it. I mean, part of finding the perfect product is also finding the perfect price. And whether it's a car, a house, or a piano, how do you go about hitting that sweet spot with your clients? To me, it's essential. And so what we'll do is first really get a handle on what their financial comfort zone is. And then within that, I can work on it. Once in a while, we'll walk by a piano and I'll say, please do not play that piano because that's the piano you really should have. <sighs> I really don't let them play it unless they can afford it. What is your philosophy then on telling them not to play it? My philosophy on not playing it is if there is a piano that is most likely four times as expensive as the, the very nice piano that they are about to choose, if they try the expensive one that is exponentially more beautiful, it will make their piano pale. I don't want that. That's a very good piano for $5,000 versus another one that's $100,000. So... It's painful. I, I, I think it's painful to have somebody play a piano that they can't have because I know they would fall in love with it. And that's what I say. Look, if you can buy it, great. If you can't, please do not play it. It seems like you reach out in a more personal way than a lot of individuals who sell 
just about anything. And, you know, you have recitals you host and, you know, other types of elements that you incorporate. How have you maintained relationships with clients after the sale? And can you tell us a little bit more about the power of that? I would like the client to experience every element of that instrument that they have chosen. And if I'm there to help, uh, then that's great. And I do that by way of sending letters saying, hey, your piano's increased in value, or you need to insure your piano, or guess what? So-and-so's in town doing a performance. Please come on in. Or they'll call and say, my grandson wants to play the piano. Let's get him a teacher. Whatever it takes. It's not about selling pianos. It's about anything piano. I always say when somebody chooses a piano and we set up the delivery, that's when I say, this is the beginning of the journey. I want to hear from you. I want to help you find a teacher. I want you to come in and play for me. I want you to come in and say hi. It's really interesting that for you, it's more about what happens after the sale than before. It's about continuing the relationship. And that's really been the bedrock to your business. How has this impacted how you work? In my, my last three years with the company, I worked by referral alone. No phone calls for me, no people coming in the door. So I had worked with piano teachers and technicians and done seminars with them to build trust and credibility. You've built an incredible network. And I think underneath it all, when people trust someone who sells to them, they see someone who has integrity, someone good who's looking out for their best interest. I mean, that's what it's all about. And, you know, building trust and credibility are oftentimes very much in your control. But what about the factors that are outside of that control? For example, when the marketer economy works against you, how do you survive those lows and really get through those difficult moments? No excuses. I never blame the economy. You figure it out, another way to approach it, you know, you, you get it done. I, I, outside influences do not enter my circle. It's not allowed. I pay attention to know about what was going to happen to the piano market and the pricing and all of that. And I planned for it. Right. Downturns always present new opportunities. And I love the notion of working with the market that you have and that you have always planned for it. It seems like you've always found avenues for growth and ways to pivot that benefited you. And I'm curious about those preparations. What plans did you put in place to grow your own market? People from 30 years ago that chose pianos are downsizing. They're calling me. They want to sell their piano. Then there's the other thing with, with adults. They're afraid to take piano lessons because they think they can't do it. I promise you. Half the population wants to learn to read music and play the piano. And now I have two patents on how to read music. One is a music video game. I am currently bringing it online. Is that a challenge? Oh, my gosh. I have so many <laughs> stacks of papers and I'm, I'm researching everything. And there are orange stickums for this area and yellow stickums for whatever. So I'm making these decisions and, and learning myself. It's interesting to me that you saw the opportunity to create unique ways to combat a market stacked up against you, even when uncomfortable, even when it wasn't second nature to you. And in those moments during market downturns, it's incredibly hard to find motivation. What drives you? What would you say is your why? My driver and my motivator 
I have finally come to acknowledge is the love of music. I have plans through my patented lesson. Am I a visionary? Am I a dreamer? I am. But dreams come true. So, Erica, the Relentless team recently went to the 121 event in Las Vegas. It's the biggest global event for the Century 21 real estate brand. And, you know, we talked to a lot of real estate agents there about what makes a successful agent. Here's a question from Jacinda Wright, a C21 agent based in South Carolina. In any marketplace, you're going to have a lot of real estate agents. I know in my marketplace, we have 4,000. So I'm competing against 4,000 other people and everyone can't do it. I would want to hear, and I do always want to hear, how the best of the best build their business and how they stay relevant. As far as staying relevant, yes. What I thought was interesting is that she had said that she's competing against 4,000. No, you're not. You are competing with yourself. And you need to become a niche of a niche. And some suggestions might be, Getting publicity. How do you do that? Write a story about an experience that you had with a client that was fantastic. Or comment on something in a newspaper and, you know, have have that, you know, hopefully published. But get your name out there with your strengths and you will succeed. What I love about what you have to say, Erica, and I completely agree, is that you really challenge Jacinda to elevate her own game, to not look at the competition, mm-hmm. to kind of own who she is, to establish herself in the market, and really making herself the element that's marketable, not necessarily by comparison. Exactly. And, and it's, it's a matter of her being the best at what she's best at. That's all it is. It's exactly the approach that I I completely agree with. With people who succeed, and Erica, you're a phenomenal example of this, when people are really successful at what they do, they own who they are, and they really take it to the next level. And for you, it has been stepping up your game and providing an amazing customer experience that other people just simply don't do. And I think that that has been really the hallmark in many ways of how you've been able to accomplish the amazing things that you have. So it's certainly been a pleasure speaking with you. And I I wanted to just say thank you, Erica, for being here. It was absolutely lovely speaking with you today. I had a blast. Thank you so much for inviting me. Hey, listeners. Everybody knows the digital space is one of the most powerful and innovative promotional tools that sales professionals have. But it can also be the most confusing. We want your questions. Dream big. What specific questions do you have about growing your business and developing your niche across social media platforms? We'd really like to hear from you. So send us a message. Our email address is century21pod at slate.com or tweet your question with the hashtag century21pod and we may use your question in our next episode. The Relentless is produced by Slate Studios and Century 21 Real Estate. I'm Dr. Julie Gurner. Thanks so much for listening, and please join us next time. Copyright Century 21 Real Estate, LLC. 
All rights reserved. Century 21 Real Estate LLC fully supports the principles of the Fair Housing Act and the Equal Opportunity Act. Each office is independently owned and operated. This material may contain suggestions and best practices that you may use at your discretion. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals featured and not necessarily of Century 21 Real Estate.